Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. This Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on a shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with the schedule of English language broadcast, or it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from France 24, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, Radio Havana Cuba, and NHK Japan. We will begin with France 24. Air pollution in China has fallen 42% in the past 10 years, a result of reduced coal burning and vehicle restrictions. So far, the U.S. has committed $113 billion in military assistance to Ukraine, despite the majority of U.S. citizens being opposed to further spending. The United Nations military is pulling out of Mali at the insistence of the new ruling military junta. France 24. Skies like this were once typical for Beijing and other major Chinese cities. The air pollution was so bad that people wore face masks to help them breathe. Faced with a global reputation for the worst smog, dubbed by residents as an airpocalypse, the Chinese government launched an ambitious multi-billion dollar war against pollution in 2014. A decade later, those efforts are paying off. According to a new report, in 2021, China's pollution levels had fallen 42 percent from 2013. According to the annual Air Quality Life Index report, the improvement means that Chinese people can now expect to live 2.2 years longer. Beijing province experienced the steepest decline, dropping just over 56 percent in just eight years. The better air quality in the city means residents living there could expect to add another 4.2 years to their lives. The government has instituted a number of measures to fight pollution, including limiting the number of cars on the road in major cities, banning new coal plants from the most polluted areas, and replacing coal stoves in millions of homes with gas heaters. But while progress has been significant, the report cautioned that China remains the 13th most polluted country. Despite more blue skies in Beijing, the city's particulate pollution in the air is still 40 percent higher than that of the most polluted county in the U.S. Still, the report concluded that when there are resources and political will, governments can make the changes necessary to tackle air pollution. When it comes to military funding, Vladimir Zelensky has no greater friend than Joe Biden. Since the war began, the U.S. has committed more than $113 billion in assistance to Ukraine, and in October will begin training Ukrainian pilots on American-made F-16 fighter jets. 
The Democratic president recently asked Congress to approve an additional $21 billion in emergency defense and humanitarian aid through the end of the year. But it's a move that may not have the public's overwhelming support, according to a recent survey. A CNN poll found that 55 percent of Americans think Congress should not authorize additional funding, with 45 percent saying it should. The results reflecting a divide down party lines, with 62 percent of Democrats favoring additional funding and 71 percent of Republicans against. A belief shared by some of the GOP candidates in next year's presidential race. And I think that this is disastrous, that we are protecting against an invasion across somebody else's border when we should use those same military resources to prevent across the invasion of our own southern border here in the United States. But other Republicans, such as Mike Pence and Nikki Haley, have defended ongoing support of Ukraine. And Chris Christie recently visited the front lines and met with President Zelensky. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has repeatedly dodged the question, and the frontrunner in the Republican race, Donald Trump, a longtime admirer of Vladimir Putin, has been critical of the tens of billions of dollars the U.S. has sent to Ukraine. On the battlefield, Kyiv's counteroffensive, which began in June, has been making slow progress. Impatience and rising costs to fund the war are causing divisions in Brussels as well, while EU members such as France have expressed the need for Europe to stand together in support of Kyiv. The fate of Ukraine is also our collective moment of truth for Europe. We're helping Ukraine because the fate of this country, the outcome of this war, depends upon our security, our prosperity, our democratic way of life. Meanwhile, the White House says the U.S. will support Kyiv for as long as it takes, but European allies are worried that is a promise that will only hold if Democrats keep the White House in 2024. It's an operation that is particularly difficult to carry out. After their 10-year peacekeeping mission in Mali, the UN's MINUSMA is pulling out as demanded by the ruling junta. Uh, and Mali, as you know, is landlocked. Infrastructure is limited and insecurity is a reality. And um, carrying out this task of withdrawal and drawdown within the agreed uh, timeline is not an easy undertaking. 13,000 peacekeepers have to be evacuated by December 31st. This map shows the three phases of the operation. Twelve camps and one temporary base will be handed over. 5,500 sea containers of equipment need to be moved out. In the first phase, peacekeepers were attacked on several occasions. As many of us feared, the transition government's decision to close Manisma has already triggered renewed violence on the ground. The UN was deployed in Mali to help protect the population as the country was facing Islamist and separatist rebellions. 300 Manusma personnel were killed in the mission. After a junta took over power in 2020 and turned to Russia and the Wagner Group to help its troops, the new leaders demanded the departure of French and UN troops. The United Nations says that in less than a year, jihadist fighters have almost doubled the territories they control in the country. Those reports were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel 
called France 24 English. They are also available at most podcast sites. Next, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. In Gabon, the military seized power immediately after the re-election of President Ali Bongo, bringing to eight the number of African countries who have experienced a coup since 2020. What is the common thread in these upheavals? Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. The army has seized power in a coup in Gabon. Senior officers intervened minutes after President Ali Bongo was declared the winner of disputed elections. The leader, whose family has been in power for more than half a century, is now under house arrest. The military have closed the borders of the Central African nation and dissolved all state institutions. World leaders have condemned the coup. The U.S. says it's deeply concerned about the unrest in the oil-producing country. I asked UW correspondent Flori Shobani how Gabon got to this point. Well, uh, many analysts will tell you that this is not a surprise at all for a country like Gabon. Now, it may seem to be following the trend of coups in Africa that we've seen in recent times, but this particular case is different. Now, the president that was ousted, um, Ali Bongo Odimba, has been in office for 14 years, doing two years, uh, two terms, doing two terms, and he was just recently announced for his third tenure. His father ran the country for 42 years. He took over from his father, who ran the country for 42 years. Now, Gabon has been independent since 1960, but has only had three presidents. So it has essentially been in the hands of this one family. So there has been a growing discomfort and dissatisfaction among the people, you know, for in terms of the leadership of their country. Also because Gabon is a, is a very wealthy country, but the wealth that you know the country has in terms of natural resources doesn't seem to translate to the lives of ordinary Gabon people. So, uh, and meanwhile, the president and his family live very lavish lives. This is the latest in a number of coups in West and Central Africa since 2020, and our viewers will surely remember what happened in Niger just last month. You say it's different in Gabon, but is there some sort of a common thread here? In the case of Niger, in the case of Mali, Burkina Faso, uh, the the reason why we saw coups in those country, countries, the major reason why we saw coups in those countries was insecurity and Islamic terrorist groups. But that's not the case in, in Gabon. And, you know, Again, yes, it was insecurity, but the fact that the leaders, the democratically elected leaders in, the, in those countries, the people felt that those leaders could not handle the security situation. And so they, they, there was growing frustration on that side. But on, in the case of Gabon, it's also frustration with leadership, but more so with this particular family and you know, the way the country has been ruled over the past 63 years. SDW's Flor Shabani in Lagos, thank you for your input. Now to Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, where an overnight barrage of Russian missiles and drones has killed at least two people. Ukraine's military said it shot down all 28 missiles and most of the 16 drones launched at the city. Debris fell on buildings. Officials said it was Russia's most powerful aerial assault on Kyiv in several months. 
Meanwhile, the Kremlin says Ukraine has launched one of the biggest wave of drone strikes on Russian territory since the start of the war. The drones hit at least six regions inside Russia. The strikes destroyed military transport aircraft. A drone attack on a Russian airbase, 700 kilometers from Ukraine. Russian anti-aircraft missiles repel some of the drones, but four Russian aircraft on the ground sustained damage. The Kremlin was quick to assign blame. The actions of the Ukrainian regime will not go unpunished. Russian law enforcement structures are investigating and properly documenting all facts of shelling by Ukrainian militants of Russian regions and their other criminal actions. Strikes on military assets inside Russia have increased in recent months to support Ukraine's ground counteroffensive, which has been meeting stiff resistance from Russian troops. The most recent drone attack appears to be the biggest on Russian soil since the start of the war. The airbase is located in the Peskov region on the border with NATO countries Estonia and Latvia. The ramp-up of drone attacks in recent months have focused on the Bryansk and Belgorod regions bordering Ukraine, as well as Moscow itself. The attacks in the heart of Russia's capital have put the city on edge, whereas attacks on airfields and border regions help cut off supply lines for Russian troops, the attacks on Moscow bear a more symbolic importance. Several times, the glittering high-rises of Moscow's business district have been the target of drones, reminding the elite and all Moscovites that they are at war. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. They're also available at most podcast sites. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. Brazilian President Lula da Silva declared that the expansion of the BRICS economic group from five nations to 11 will give it more power than the G7. The Chilean government has launched a national search plan for those disappeared during the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, which began on September 11, 1973. In Haiti, at least seven protesters were gunned down by gangs. Radio Havana, Cuba. The president of Brazil, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, affirmed this Tuesday that the world would not be the same after the enlargement of the BRICS group formed by the South American country, Russia, India, China and South Africa. At the recent 15th BRICS summit held in South Africa, it was announced that Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, United Arab Emirates, Ethiopia and Iran will join the group as of January the 1st, 2024. Quote, BRICS became a more powerful, stronger, more important thing. I believe that the world will not be the same after the enlargement of BRICS in global economic discussions, he highlighted in his weekly social media broadcast, Conversions with the President. In addition, the Brazilian president considers that the BRICS group is stronger than the G7 that brings together the seven largest economies in the world. Quote, now BRICS is stronger than the G7. In 95, the G7 countries had a 45% share of the world GDP, the gross domestic product, by purchasing parity, and the BRICS had 16%. Now the BRICS has 32% and the G7 at 29%, he said. President Lula 
also spoke about the visit he made last week to South Africa, Angola and Sao Tome and Principe, as well as the proposal that rich countries transform the debt of African nations with the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, into infrastructural works so that they can start to grow and pay their debt. They should be given that opportunity. The African continent is very poor, and the problem is that almost all the countries owe a lot to the IMF, and the amount of interest they pay prevents them from investing in anything else. The Chilean government has launched the national search plan for the detainees disappeared during the military dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. The program will start from the integration of the work done by truth commissions, courts of justice, victims' relatives and previous governments. During a meeting with the foreign press, the Chilean Minister of Justice, Luis Cordero, explained that the objective of the plan is to know the conditions and circumstances in which the detentions and forced disappearances occurred during Pinochet's dictatorial regime. The Chilean minister affirmed that the plan is a form of reparation not only for the victims' families, but also to society. The official ceremony will be headed by President Gabriel Boric and will take place in the Plaza de la Constitución in the Chilean capital, Santiago, on the occasion of the International Day of the Victims of This Crime Against Humanity. The launching of the search plan coincides with the 50th anniversary of the fascist military coup d'etat against then-President Salvador Allende, which is remembered as one of the darkest moments in the history of that South American country. President Gabriel Boris stated on September 11, 2022, that the whereabouts of 1,192 disappeared detainees of the Pinochet dictatorship were still unknown. More than 3,200 people were killed or disappeared during the 17 years of military dictatorship. In Haiti, at least seven people were killed after gang members armed with machine guns opened fire on protesters in Canaan. The rally against gang violence had been organized by a local church. Canaan is a makeshift town near the capital Port-Prince, built by the people who lost their homes in Haiti's devastating 2010 earthquake. Survivors of Sunday's attack placed blame on the pastor, who organized the rally and then continued the march even as the shooting broke out. One organizer, François Wiesner, told reporters, they opened fire on us with all sorts of guns. The pastor's followers really believed what he told them. He said they were bulletproof, that those who were wounded had no faith. I was there. I saw everything with my own eyes. They were firing, and the pastor kept walking. Hundreds of thousands of Haitians have been internally displaced or forced to migrate due to the worsening violence. The United Nations reported that 8,700 residents have been forced to take shelter in a crowded sports center in Port-au-Prince. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though the podcasts are never updated. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 606060 or 6165. At their website, radiohc.cu, you can stream the English version at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Daylight Saving Time. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report, or want to support this listener-funded program like listeners in Albion and Upper Lake California did this week, 
contact information is available at outfarpress.com or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Your support helps the weekly production of this show, which is distributed without cost to more than 100 radio stations around the globe. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with NHK World Radio Japan. The Japanese government says it will support its fisheries in the face of China and other nations refusing to import products due to the ongoing dumping of radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Rahm Emanuel, declared the fish to be safe to eat. China condemned a new U.S. military aid package to Taiwan. The U.S. has approved the sale of long-range missiles to Japan. At the U.N., Tuesday was the International Day Against Testing Nuclear Weapons. A group of Japanese companies are developing non-petroleum-based drink bottles. NHK Japan Japan is promising to keep its fisheries afloat. They're grappling with China's suspension of Japanese seafood imports after the release of treated and diluted water from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Prime Minister Kishida Fumio says Japan's fish are safe and its fishers will find markets elsewhere. Kishida announced emergency measures on Thursday. They include the expansion of both domestic and global sales, with details to be finalized early next week. China used to be Japan's biggest customer for marine products, and the loss has hit some companies hard. Miyagi Prefecture seafood processor Yamanaka used to ship to Hong Kong once a week. Now it has about 100 tons of scallops sitting in a warehouse without a clear buyer. Kishida said his government will help fisheries diversify their customer base, especially for products severely impacted by the ban, like scallops. Meanwhile, the U.S. ambassador paid a visit to a Fukushima fishing port on Thursday. He voiced his country's support for Japan and his confidence in the safety of Japanese seafood. Rahm Emanuel spoke with officials, shopped for fish at a local market, and ate both raw and cooked flounder at a nearby restaurant. Fish caught near the plant have been examined by Japan's fisheries agency, which found no detectable levels of tritium following the treated water release. The plant's operator also says daily samples taken from waters within three kilometers of the plant show below detectable levels of under 10 becquerels per liter. That's in line with findings from Japan's Environment Ministry and Fukushima Prefecture. About 1.35 million tons of water has accumulated at the damaged nuclear facility, stored in about 1,000 tanks. The water is treated to remove most radioactive materials, but still contains tritium. As of Wednesday, Tokyo Electric Power Company says it's discharged more than 2,900 tons of treated water. Beijing has condemned an unprecedented U.S. aid package toward the Taiwanese armed forces. Washington has okayed the first-ever transfer of military aid to Taiwan using a program typically reserved for sovereign states. U.S. media outlets report the State Department notified Congress of the aid package on Wednesday. 
Taiwan's being offered $80 million through the Foreign Military Financing Program. It can use the funds to purchase equipment and receive U.S. military training. U.S. House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Michael McCall welcomed the move. He said the weapons will not just help Taiwan, but also strengthen U.S. deterrence and national security in response to an increasingly aggressive China. Beijing says the aid package undermines China's sovereignty and security interests. A foreign ministry spokesperson accused the U.S. of helping separatists seek Taiwanese independence through force. The United States has approved the potential sale of long-range air-launched cruise missiles and related equipment to Japan for the first time. The deal is worth more than $100 million. The U.S. government notified Congress on Monday of the plan to sell Japan the joint air-to-surface standoff missiles with extended range. The weapons mounted on fighter jets can reach targets more than 900 kilometers away. That puts them out of range of enemy air defense systems. The U.S. says Japan has requested to buy up to 50 missiles at an estimated cost of $104 million. It says the proposed sale will support the foreign policy goals and national security objectives of the United States by improving the security of a major ally. The U.S. also says providing the standoff missiles will improve Japan's capability to meet current and future threats. The United States and Russia exchanged jabs at a U.N. General Assembly meeting Tuesday, marking the International Day Against Nuclear Testing. The United Nations is calling on world powers to implement an agreement to ban all testing of nuclear weapons. The Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, or CTBT, was adopted in 1996 and ratified by 178 countries, including Japan. But eight countries, including the U.S., China, and North Korea, have yet to do so. Amid Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine, the U.N. High Representative for Disarmament Affairs, Nakamitsu Izumi, stressed the importance of enacting the CTBT as soon as possible. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N. addressed concerns over Russia's growing nuclear rhetoric. Although Russia has ratified the treaty, it prompted some concern in February after Russian President Vladimir Putin threatened to resume nuclear tests if the United States does so first. In response, a Russian representative called out the U.S. for not ratifying the treaty, despite having actually used nuclear weapons. The U.S. has carried out the highest number of tests in the world. A group of Japanese companies is working on developing plastic drink bottles that are not made from any petroleum-based materials. They say the commercialization of the PET bottles produced only from bio-based substances would be a world first. Paris Island accounts for about 70% of the bottles. One of the company's oil wholesaler, Enel, says the new technology relies on used cooking oil and other bio-based materials to produce Paris Island. Enel says it will begin producing the material at its refinery in western Japan by the end of this year. Mass production of the PET bottle is scheduled for 2024. About 35 million will be shipped annually. 
Or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. They also podcast at most sites. All the times they announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find information for online support for this show. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. This shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 27 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid using solar panels. While I am recuperating from spinal surgery, I am staying in a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.